Hello everybody, welcome to the Tuesday Toolbox Meeting of Adult Children of Alcoholics in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. My name is Anne, I'm a Tuesday Toolbox member and an adult child. We're recording our speakers every week because we're hoping others will benefit from hearing these stories from our members. We'd love to hear your comments and questions. Our email address is TuesdayToolboxACA at gmail.com. Also, please take a moment to rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts. It will help other ACAs find the show. Adult Children of Alcoholics is a 12-step program of recovery for people who grow up in an alcoholic or otherwise dysfunctional home. If you'd like to find a meeting to attend, go to adultchildren.org and click on Meetings. This week, we're hearing from our friend Charlie, who talked about para-alcoholism. Please enjoy. All right, so hi, guys. I'm Charlie, and I'm excuse me, recovering adult child in Florida. I feel kind of like an imposter because I've never been to this meeting except last week I came, um, but one of your members invited me to come and speak, and I've been an ACA for eight years, so I am definitely not a stranger to you, even though I haven't been here, because I think that we all have something in common, and every time I go to an ACA meeting, I feel you know, that, that camaraderie. So um, what I wanted to start with is a reading, it's on page 335 in the Red Book, and it's What is Para-Alcoholism? Page, three, page 335. So what is para-alcoholism? Para-alcoholism involves the stored fear, abuse, and distorted thinking required by growing up in an alcoholic or other dysfunctional family. The stored fear and distorted thinking take on a, quote, drug form within. The para-alcoholic becomes dependent on the fear and distorted thinking for survival. In the sequence of time, para-alcoholism precedes codependence since it was formed in childhood. As adults, para-alcoholics live out their dependence as codependents with chronic fear and distorted thinking that are carried over from childhood. And then I'm skipping down a few sentences. The fear and thinking are represented as chronic worry, verbal abuse, physical abuse, or shaming projections aimed at defenseless children. So I'm gonna probably read a little bit more from another part on codependence, but I'll stop there. Um, I mean, I'm pure alcoholism. <laughs> I get like, too confused. But when I first um, heard about para alcoholism from the Red Book, I was in an ACA meeting, and I, it was just like, that's it. That defines me because I'm I haven't been an alcoholic, nor were my family alcoholics. But when they defined para alcoholism, I said, that's it because it's something that is a consciousness that usually is underlying in an alcoholic or dysfunctional family, but I never heard it defined that way. So I was like, yes, I can relate. Like fear, distorted thinking, you know, worry, anxiety, emotional pain. Um, another way it showed up for me is kind of like blowing things out of proportion, making a mountain out of a molehill, which is sort of like worrying. Um, sometimes paranoia where, you know, I'll, I'll think something is happening and it's not, or I'll think somebody is saying something about me and they're not. You know, I like hypersensitivity, that kind of stuff. And what I also discovered when I was in um, beginning ACA is that I was addicted to problems. 
addicted to this kind of thinking. So when I heard and learned about para-alcoholism, I was like, you know, raise my hand. Yeah, I can, I can relate. Um, so one of the things that always struck me was when I first started doing ACA, I went to a lot of the inner child meetings and the loving parent meetings. Um, by the way, most of my ACA work has been on the phone bridge. You may or may not have heard of it. I've done very little face-to-face because -face I never found those meetings to be as valuable here in my area of Florida. Um, so I went to the phone bridge, which has like 10 meetings a day. It's very, very active. Um, but we have um, seven days a week. We have a loving parent meeting on chapter eight, you know, becoming your own loving parent. It has the inner child work. And so we just read through the chapter once, twice, three times. <laughs> I went for years to that. And it helped me to understand like, one of the memories I had was sitting there as a kid, I couldn't feel or express my feelings. I had to stuff everything. And so what I did was I went to like biting my nails, picking at the skin around my nails and, and going inside in my head because I couldn't talk back. My dad was a very shaming disciplinarian. And, you know, he was always right and he was always getting control. And even though I would argue back and I would, you know, sass back to him, then he, you know, it slapped me or whatever, but I'd still get the last word in because I was like defiant and rebellious. And and yet, you know, he'd tell me to go sit in the corner, go sit in that chair, and I don't want to hear another word out of you. You know, that kind of abuse. And so I, I had to be silent for I don't know how long, but it seemed like it was a long time. And so I would go into my head, you know, and I would rehearse and rehash and, and I would fight with him, you know, in my thoughts. And so it established this early, early pattern, which I'm sure people can relate to, you know, where I thought something was wrong with me. I was shameful, I was guilty. And then on the other hand, I was like fighting him and I was, you know, calling him, you know, swear words and, you know, telling him I hated him and, you know, going back and forth between attacking him and defending myself and feeling horrible inside. Um, so, as an adult with that kind of, you know, conditioning, I, I still went to my mind, my mind and that mental escape, but I also went to drugs, went to alcohol, TV, sleeping, various forms to escape from that overthinking. Like I just couldn't, couldn't get my head to stop. And even to this day, you know, I still have times when I just can't turn it off, but I'm learning healthier ways, you know, to find, to deal with that, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, so the para-alcoholism section, I'm not gonna have time to read this because I'm looking at my time, but there's another great section on page um, 456 and 457. It's more about para-alcoholism, page 456 and 457 in the Red Book. And one of the things it talks about is that we couldn't have turned out any other way in the conditions that most of us were treated and where we had to stuff our feelings, where we had to, um, you know, listen to our authority figures. It, we couldn't help but turn out with fear and distorted thinking as a part of our makeup. Um, so let's see. I wanted to also say that one of the things that's helped me a lot is going to laundry list meetings. We have, um, I think, three laundry lists, no, two laundry list meetings a day on the phone bridge. And um, a couple of them are in the morning a couple times a week. So I've gone through the laundry list many times in the Red Book, as well as the laundry list workbook, which came out just a few years ago. Um, but that's been really, really helpful. And I've done several rounds of the steps, but one time I did 
the ACA, Tony A's 12 steps, ACOA steps. And when I did that round, I specifically focused on my, my inventory was on the 12 step, uh, the, the 14 laundry list traits. And I discovered that trait 12 on stuffing our feelings was like the center of a wheel and all the other traits, you know, that I could relate to, which were about seven of them were like um, spokes on that wheel. And if, if I would be able to heal that stuffing my feelings, I wouldn't be so concerned about people pleasing, or I wouldn't be so concerned, you know, about attracting relationships that are codependents, that kind of thing. So discovering that and going to inner child meetings and, and talking to fellow travelers and sharing at meetings all helped me to really get my feelings up and out. Um, being able to talk about them was a huge um, welcoming for me because I you know, found in ACA, so many people could relate to the feelings or the stories I was telling that it gave me a lot of validation, which as a wounded inner child, I really needed validation. Um, just looking at my time here, okay. So um, a lot of feelings of fear and doubt, anxiety, um, later in my life, about 30 or so, I started to feel depression. I was aware of it, but boy, was I trying to stuff that. <clears throat> but in ACA, I was able to start to talk to people about, you know what, the truth is I, I get caught up in depression, you know, and that's when I stuff my feelings. I want to go to food or TV or sleep to just escape. I needed to talk about that openly. And, you know, through our step five in the red book um, or in the yellow workbook, going through a lot of grief around that so to heal from that grief has been huge for me, um, helping me to be able to express my shame and my guilt, but not feel shameful or guilty about it, you know, but accepting that, of course, I would feel shame. Of course, I'd feel guilt. Like, it's natural. And, you know, around ACAs, it's kind of like, like some of my most intimate friends, it's like, oh, this is so cool that you're like, you relate to me, you, you're validating my feelings, you know, I'm not alone. Such, such a big part of my healing process. Um, but then, okay, fast forward like six years or so, because I've been in ACA eight years, I eventually had to stop feeling and talking about it so much because I was getting closer to suicidal despair it would start to take over and I would give my feelings so much credibility that I would get like drowning in them. Um, I felt on and off like suicidal despair at times, but it really got heightened about two or three years ago. Um, so I was like, how can I allow these feelings but not have them take over and rule me? And I defend them. And then uh, something happened a few times during that time right before that i started crying out to god and i started like yelling at god i started venting my anger like you know i've done all this work and i'm entitled to healing i'm entitled to recovery how how can i be this way after all these years and, and even before ACA, i did a bunch of spiritual psychological work and i was just venting my anger at god and that was really huge for me because i was born and raised catholic and then I was in the new age and I, you know, it was kind of like, it was blasphemous to talk to God like that. Like you can't tell God these things, but I just, I was such a rebel I, and I just had to do it. So I just said, God, you know, if, if you're going to crucify me or whatever, do it, but I got to tell you what I'm feeling. And I'm so glad I did. That was a huge turning point for me. Um, I was compelled to just, you know, 
be honest. And of course, you know, now I see in hindsight, it's like the way that I believe God, God knew what I was thinking and knew what I was feeling. So it wasn't a secret anyway. So it wasn't like I was telling him anything new, but you know, anyway, so I was like, if I, if I could just heal this, then I could succeed and be mentally healthy. And I was like begging God and, you know, long story short, there's a lot more to this, but I had a series of crises happen around that time. One of them was that I lost the home I was living in that I was renting and then um, out of choice, even though I initially was looking for a place, I decided to be homeless for a while and just you know travel a little and decide what to do. But anyway, my world came crashing down in about five different ways. <laughs> and, and I knew, I kept kind of like saying, okay, my world is crashing down, but I know only a power greater than me can heal me. And even though I've had this relationship with God that I thought was really strong, and it, and it was, you know, relatively speaking, but I didn't know that I was just about to undergo a transformation with God that was going to take Three me minutes. to a deeper oh. level of connection. Um, so Three minutes. Thank you. Okay, so I was conditioned to be my own God, which, you know, maybe people can relate to. With ACA, we tend to be self-sufficient, controlling. Defining my own God gave me a way to be in control. But when I realized that um, I was going through this so terrible, difficult time, I, I was so inclined and motivated to surrender. So that's what happened. I surrendered to God in a big way, more than I have before. Um, I'm, yeah, I only have a few minutes left, but um, I'm gonna kind of fast forward to say that I, I also was developing a relationship with my true self, which of course we talk a lot about in chapter eight. And with that relationship with my true self and my more deeper, closer relationship with God, I found a new way to be in relationship with God that really is suitable for me and has given me so much peace and salvation. And of course, it's not like 100%, not 24-7. I still have a lot of flaws and I still have times when I get really stuck, but I have so much more hope and so much more inner power and strength that I know that I don't have to believe my false self stories, which a lot of times are feelings that I used to defend, but now I'm like, no, this isn't true. You know, I am not um, afraid. I'm not full of doubt. I'm not insecure. You know, I am a child of God. I have the strength and power of that true self within me and that true parent, which is my God. You know, and of course, ACA talks about, you know, we, we, we have our biological parents, but we seek to find our true parent in the ACA 12 steps. And you know, I'm so grateful that that true parent is really showing up for me more and more. As I open up to God, God opens up to me and there's an intimacy and, you know, more of a trust that I don't have to go to drugs or alcohol. I still go to food sometimes, honestly, but a lot less than I used to. Um, I go to God a lot more. And sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, I'm so fortunate to have that true loving parent and other times I still feel like, wait a minute, where are you? I've lost access, come back, you know? So it's a, it's a process. I, I, I know for sure in my journey in eight years in ACA, it is not a straight trajectory and I haven't arrived anywhere. It's always a process. Um, sometimes I'm closer in my recovery healing than other times when I slip. And I've learned that that's important to accept that it's part of the process. And, and every ACA I know 
has also, you know, gone through ups and downs and it's a process. It's not like, you know, after three years you arrive somewhere and, and then you just leave ACA because you don't have to deal with these issues. That's not been my experience, nor has it been most of the people that I know. So anyway, that's a good place for me to wrap it up. Um, thank you all for being here. Thanks for listening. And I'm gonna stick around and listen to your shares. So take care.